0: Uh, Brothers and sisters, what a joy we experienced this morning to be led by the young ones. Thank you so much to the teenagers. Um, Parents, I want to encourage you, continue discipling your your students, uh, regardless of whether they were on stage here today or not. We are so grateful for the youth ministry that we have here and the many who are growing and learning the word there. And I'm so thankful for Francesco and for the wonderful work he's doing in training and leading them as well. You can see their efforts at work. Uh, Before we get to the word, two quick things that I want to mention. First of all, um, one of my great joys is that I often get to be like, I feel like Santa Claus. Like I, I don't make the gifts, I just get to... To tell people about, I get to give them away. Well, in this case, um, I get to be the one who shares with so many of people about some of the best news that we ever receive, which is that there are new babies arriving. And so today, I get to share with you that John and Lindsey Holt are once again expecting, and so we are looking forward very much to new baby Holt. So please encourage them, John and Lindsay. What a blessing. Number three on the way. What good news. Uh, The other thing that I'd like to share with you is just a big thank you to all of the men who have been helping us with the renovations here at the church and across the street at the new parsonage uh, that we have. What an amazing amount of work we've been able to get done in just a couple of Saturdays. It's incredible. You know, they say that we've done everything except the kitchen sink. Well, if you look in our dumpster on your way out the parking lot, you'll see there is a kitchen sink in there. So it's everything and the kitchen sink that they've been working on. What an amazing difference in just two weeks. I encourage you, if you have not been yet available to join us, if you'd like to join, um, we have men gathering on Saturdays at 9 o'clock. If you want to come this Saturday, we'll be there. Uh, Regardless of your level of skill, we have things to do and ways to help. Um, I'm helping, and I have practically no skill. So uh, that gives evidence that, by God's grace, we're able to have all levels of skill involved, Even my boys have gotten engaged in the ministry. So if you're able to come and help us this Saturday, we'd love to have you, and we'll plug you in. It's also, to be honest, just a really wonderful time to fellowship with some of the brothers while we've got maybe a tool in our hands and a bag of tools in our other and, you know, chopping trees down and, and building showers and whatever else. God uses that time to help us grow closer to one another. So I encourage you, if you're available this coming Saturday, we'd love to have you join. With all that being said, let's now turn our attention to the Word of God Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. During my time in seminary, I worked for about a year and a half, the night shift at a hotel in Louisville, doing their front desk and some of their accounting work. And at one point, one of my co-workers named Dante was away for a couple of weeks, and while he was away, it was like this entire shift of our our entire staff. And so when he came back, I was one of the few people that he still knew, and he, he happened to come back and he was filling in after my shift. So I was the one who was explaining to him all of the changes that had occurred while he was away. And I also happened to tell him that while he was away, that one of our fellow co-workers had been elevated to the point of general manager. Well, how did Dante respond to this change? Uh, He must have had some kind of blood feud with the guy who got the general manager position because he immediately and emphatically quit on the spot. He threw his badge onto the desk and told me that, Congratulations, you're going to be working a double today. And immediately he went to the nearest gas station and he found the largest, reddest drink that he could from the soda fountain and then immediately returned. What happened next is just seared into my memory. It It is one of those slow motion events that I will never forget. The automatic double doors opened and Dante yelled some profanity at my boss who was not even present at the time. And lobbed like a grenade, this large 64-ounce cup, into the center of our lobby. And then he left. Sadly, I ended up being the one who had to clean it up. Never do that. Anyone ever. The person that you're aiming at is not the person who will probably end up cleaning it. Uh, just some schmuck like me will have to go clean it up. Today we arrive at a passage that has been the cause of a great deal of confusion in recent decades. It's been misunderstood. It's been misrepresented, and especially it's been done so by our more Pentecostal brothers and sisters in ways that are deeply concerning. So as we make our way through the text this morning, I'm going to do my best to fairly and accurately and biblically present what I believe the text is saying, and in doing so, I will necessarily be making some very pointed critiques of particular doctrinal positions that some have incorrectly derived from Acts chapter 19. Before we even read the text, I need to share with you a quick disclaimer The official doctrinal position of our church is that the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy have ceased. And we teach that they did exist during the apostolic era for the purpose of authenticating the message of the gospel and advancing missions over language barriers, Uh, but this is known as the cessationist viewpoint. We believe those things have ceased with the apostolic era. However, we do welcome members into the church who are continuationists. Continuationists believe that the sign gifts are still active and are still practiced today. We simply ask that anyone who holds those beliefs would not practice those gifts in our services or campaign against them as doctrines of the church. But please know that regardless of your position today, whether you are a cessationist or you are completely committed to continuationism, it doesn't ultimately matter today because we should all be able to agree on what we're looking at today. Both camps should be disturbed by the way that some have twisted these scriptures to create some dangerous and very ungodly teachings. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So please follow along, starting in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. This is God's Word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's turn now to prayer. Our Father God, we ask that today, through the challenging passage, you would indeed cause us to have more clarity. Clarity about who you are, clarity about who we are, clarity about what it means to live in the Spirit. We pray, God, that today you would strengthen us Uh, wipe away blind spots that we have, give us understanding so that we, we might love you in spirit and in truth, and that our worship might be directed towards you correctly. And we ask, Lord, that today you would give us great joy as we grow in Christ and as your spirit works among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage, we are introduced to 12 men that Luke identifies as disciples. If you were here last week, you may notice that there are some similarities between Apollos and these men in the sense that they both, both groups, claimed to believe in the baptism of John. However, what we are going to see is that there is a big difference between these 12 disciples and Apollos. Our approach to the passage today is to ask three questions and then answer them, and then we'll close out with three applications. Our questions are going to focus in on these 12 disciples and their relationship to the Lord and their response to the gospel. Our questions that will help us understand the passage today are first, what did they have? Secondly, what were they missing? And thirdly, what was the result? Let's begin by asking the text, what did they have? Well, Dr. Luke tells us that these 12 men were disciples. However, it becomes very quickly clear that they are not disciples of Jesus. They are disciples of John the Baptist. This likely means that they had been in Israel at some point during the ministry of John, and they heard him teach. However, it's possible that they had never been to Israel and only heard about John's teaching secondhand. Regardless, what they heard was not the message about Jesus. It was the message looking forward to Jesus. You see, John the Baptist was the last great prophet of the Old Covenant era. Although we read about him on the pages in the New Testament, he was the last prophet who was pointing the way forward to the coming Messiah. Jesus speaks about John's mission this way. He says, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. There's a lot in those few verses that I just read to you from the words of Jesus. There's a lot there to digest, but let me draw out three quick observations about what Jesus had to say regarding John and his ministry. First, of all of the Old Covenant saints, John was the greatest. And he was so by the very nature of his full humility and subservience to Christ. Secondly, when it says that the prophets and the law law prophesied until John, what Jesus is saying is that John is the very last of the forerunners that were pointing forward to his own arrival, to Jesus' arrival. And finally... When it speaks of John being the Elijah that is to come, it is a reference to the very last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, which promised that Elijah would come before the great day of the Messiah. Elijah was the figurehead of all the prophets. His job was to call the people of Israel away from false gods and to turn their hearts to the Lord. And this is why the angel told John the Baptist's father before he was ever even born, he will go before him, before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist figuratively fulfilled the role of Elijah by calling people to turn their hearts to the Lord. Now, Paul summarizes the entire ministry of John the Baptist in this way in our text today, in verse 4, by saying, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. Now, it appears that These 12 disciples of John got that. They understood that. They believed that. They lived according to that. They seem to have trusted John's teachings. They have repented, and they knew that they were sinners. They knew that they needed to be forgiven by God and transformed by the Lord. They also seem to have believed and trusted in the promise of the coming Messiah. Most of what we know about John's ministry that we have read in the Scriptures, most of that is what occurs in relation to Jesus. At one point in John's ministry, Jesus visited John and was baptized by him. It was that very day that John pointed out to all of his own disciples that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was that very day that John said, you should be baptizing me. It was that day that many of John's disciples stopped following John the Baptist and started following Jesus. We know a lot about that day. And we even know quite a bit about some of the things that happened after that day in the life of John the Baptist, for example, when he was beheaded. But what we don't know is very much about what happened before that day. What exactly was it that John was teaching? What details did he give about the Messiah? How much did he speak about his cousin Jesus before Jesus arrived? How explicit was he? How direct was he? Did he ever speak about him by name? The best summary that we have of John's preaching is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Here is the message that Mark summarizes of John's pre-baptism of Christ preaching. He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Notice, he never once names Jesus. His works are described, but his identity is obscured. Also notice that there is no timetable that's delivered in this sermon. After is a very long period of time. If I tell you I will do something for you after today, that doesn't give you a real answer. He just says, after me, someone is coming. That's what all of the other prophets spoke about as well. So it seems that these 12 disciples of John heard about the coming Messiah, they believed in the coming Messiah, they truly set their heart upon him, but they did not have the whole story. And it's likely that they had already departed from Israel before the baptism of Jesus, and they made their home here in Ephesus. This led to them living in accordance with the teaching of John, seeking to honor the Lord and looking for the coming Messiah, but they were missing some crucial aspects of the gospel, which brings us to our second point what were they missing? Well, there's an obvious initial answer that we can provide to this question because Paul asks them the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their response was, what's that? We didn't even know that that existed. What is that? What is the Holy Spirit? Well, in the 1760s, there was a group of relatively rugged, independent, individualistic types that moved into the what was then the American West, into the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, what we would now call... West Virginia. And these people were incredibly isolated from the rest of the colonies. They had no contact with anyone for over 20 years. They were a separatist society. And when a visitor finally did happen into their mountain village and they began speaking to them, he asked them if they were, if they were loyal to President George Washington. And they were like, what's that? Who is that? What is a president? They didn't know that he even existed. But you see, their answer to that single question answered many other questions automatically. It indicated that they did not know about the Revolutionary War. He was their great general. If you don't know about George Washington, you don't know about the Revolutionary War. It means they didn't know about the Constitution or the Continental Congress. George Washington was so intertwined with all of those events that by saying they don't know who he is, they don't know about any of these other things either. A lack of George Washington means a lack of so much more. So how did these guys respond? Well, they had moved inland mainly because they hated the British, so they were actually overjoyed and glad to be made aware that there was a new country and that they were part of it. Similarly, in our situation today, there was a lack of the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know who he was, but that indicated so much more. Consider the various aspects of the gospel that would be missing if you don't know about the Holy Spirit. Since we're in Acts, and Acts was written by Luke, let's start by looking at a couple of references from the book of Luke and consider what major aspects of the gospel are automatically missing without the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1 verse 35 says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. The virgin birth is an integral part of the gospel story. It is necessary for us to understand what is going on in this child who was born. Unlike every other child, he was born without a sin nature like you and I are. He was born without sin propensity. Why? Because he was born of the Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit, no virgin birth, no gospel. Move forward to Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. We were already speaking about this before, the baptism of Jesus... It says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The baptism is the unofficial beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was his earthly commissioning. It was the first public declaration by God the Father This is the Messiah. And I cannot imagine John the Baptist teaching anyone or telling any of his disciples about that incredible event, that moment where literally all three persons of the Trinity are visible through human senses. And he says to his disciples, yeah, there was this incredible time where I baptized the Messiah and God the Father spoke, and then he leaves out the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine that happening. No Holy Spirit, no baptism of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Notice that it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus there to be tempted. The active obedience of Christ is a necessary part of the gospel. Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He had to succeed in every way that we fail. But if somebody doesn't know about the Holy Spirit, they likely don't know about the temptation and the obedience of Christ. Notice also that the public teaching of Jesus was often filled with messages about the Holy Spirit. For example, when Jesus returned to his own hometown, he preached to the synagogue and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. We find this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And if you jump down to verse 21, he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the Holy Spirit is on me, Jesus says. Or let me dip our toes a little bit into John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, Jesus' public earthly teaching ministry was filled with sermons like this about the Holy Spirit. If you don't know the Holy Spirit, you definitely don't know the teachings of Jesus. And this would have been even more true about the private teachings of Jesus, the teachings that he gave to the apostles. The majority of the references that are made to the Holy Spirit in the Gospels are made the last night. that Jesus has with the disciples before he is crucified. It's during the Last Supper, the night that he was betrayed. That's where he says things like, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 14, 26. And nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you, John 16, verse 7. If you don't know about the Holy Spirit, then you have not been taught by the apostles because the apostles' teaching was filled with teaching about the Holy Spirit and about these promises. And there's one more that I'd like to add. This one's huge. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the Holy Spirit, quote, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It is the same Spirit that lives in you. He will give life to your bodies in the same way. That is an incredible verse. You don't know the Holy Spirit. You don't know the resurrection. You don't know the gospel. So what were they missing? They were missing the gospel. They were believing the truth that they had been told, but they needed to know the rest of the story. They were not just missing information, they were missing a person. They were missing Jesus, the Messiah, and they were missing the presence of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 tells us that this means something significant regarding salvation. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, no Holy Spirit no salvation. Last week we learned about Apollos. You notice that he was missing something. Now, you remember last week, Priscilla and Aquila, they approached him and they began to discuss with him about something that he had gotten wrong about baptism. But before Aquila and Priscilla ever confronted them, before it seems they ever even spoke to him, this is how Apollos was described. It says of him that he, quote, spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. He knew Christ. He knew Jesus. He knew his teachings. He knew the gospel. These 12 disciples in, these disciples of John in Acts 19, they didn't. Which brings us to our third and final question. What was the result? We're going to look at five things that come out of this conversation uh, that Paul had with these disciples of John. First, notice that Paul preached the gospel to them. This is one of those moments where I wish that they had recorded every word of Paul in this conversation. We don't hear a great deal. Literally, we hear almost nothing that he says to them. It is very truncated for us. We're given a very shortened version of these events, just the facts. But there is a single line that informs us what the central aspect of his message must have been to them. If you were paying close attention earlier, you will have noticed that when I was reading Paul's words to them, where he was defining the ministry of John... I didn't finish the quote. Let me give that another go. It says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who comes after him, and then he tells them, that is Jesus. That is Jesus. It was after hearing this that they believed, and everything changed for these men. Well, how did they respond? Did they respond more like Dante throwing a cherry limeade made grenade into our lobby of our hotel, or did they respond like the West Virginian mountaineers who were overjoyed to hear about their new government? Well, we see their response clearly, and the second thing that occurs it tells us that they were baptized. Unlike Apollos, Paul discerned that these people were not believers, so the next step for them was to be baptized. Their belief was followed up by humble acceptance of the fact that Their baptism that they had encountered, the baptism of John, was not sufficient. They believed in Christ, and then they turned and displayed their belief in Christ by being baptized. So they were immersed as a symbolic representation of their newfound faith in Jesus. The third thing that happens is we see that they prophesied, and they spoke in other languages. Now, remember that I told you there are some strange interpretations about this chapter that have been the cause of some great trouble in the modern church, Well, this is where it comes from. This is the fourth and final occasion where the gift of tongues is ever seen taking place in the book of Acts. Just for reference, there's only one other book in the New Testament that speaks about the gift of tongues. Here in this book, we see four examples of that taking place. All four are incredibly different. They all have different uh, aspects to them, different timing to them, different ways that they show up. Uh, But there are a few things that are similar in each event. These things are always true. First of all, no one ever sought it out. Secondly, nobody ever prayed to receive the gifts. Thirdly, every time they arrived, Luke presents it as evidence that genuine salvation has occurred. And it's that last part that has been the cause of so much trouble. Here's where the dangerous doctrine comes in. There are modern churches that have developed a doctrine known as the initial physical evidence of the baptism of of the Holy Spirit. I actually grew up in a church that believed and taught these things. And what that means is they believe that one of two things here, either you have not been saved unless you have spoken in another language, unless you have spoken in tongues, or they believe that you are just a baby Christian, an infant Christian, and that the Lord has not yet developed you to maturity because you have not yet spoken in tongues. That is not at all what this passage is teaching. As we've already read in Romans chapter 8, All two true Christians have the Holy Spirit living within them. So we can say with certainty there is a problem with that doctrine. But we actually don't even have to look outside of this text and leave it today to see that their order of operations is broken. Notice that Paul never, ever baptized anyone unless they first believed in the gospel. So we know that the order must be that, one, they believed, two, they were physically baptized, and then three, the Lord happened to display His power by allowing them to express the sign gifts. It does not mean that all who are believers in Christ will receive these gifts. This brings us to another major mistake that people make regarding this passage. Uh, some of, of the more charismatic and Pentecostal camps would claim that there are basically two tiers of Christianity. It's kind of like I mentioned before, you've got the baby Christians, and then you've got the mature Christians, and the determining factor between the two is whether or not they express these gifts. Well, to be honest, if you want to know about the gift of tongues, the main book that you read in the New Testament is the book of 1 Corinthians, and the reason he writes to them about these things is because they got it all wrong. And how did they get it wrong? The way that they got it wrong was by viewing it as a two-tiered operation of Christianity, that those who had this gift were super-Christians who had something very significant, and those who did not have this gift were lesser Christians. And all of those who had it were lording that over everyone else. All of those who didn't were looking down on those who did have it. Well, this is certainly not the case. If he thought that they were already followers of Christ, why would he baptize them? If he thought they were already believers in Jesus, and they just were missing a piece that would make them better Christians, why did he baptize them? Again, why was their baptism of John not, not good enough? This kind of teaching is dangerous because it creates serious division within the church. This is not a new problem. This was the main problem that we see of the gift of tongues in the early church, the way that it was abused. And so we need to look very carefully at these things and we need to acknowledge, whether you are a continuationist or a cessationist, that this is not a healthy perspective, that these gifts are not for all people of all time. The fourth thing that we see that happens here is that the gospel was rejected at the synagogue. So far, most of our attention has been focused on the 12 disciples of John that were saved in this passage, but there are a few important things that happen directly after they come to faith. Do me a favor and look back at your copy of the Scriptures in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. It says, "...and he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God." But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, now we're seeing that the way they responded was not pleasant, we're going to see that he leaves. This was the exact sort of rejection that Paul had become very accustomed to in most of the Jewish communities that he visited. Although he continually took the gospel to them, they would continually respond in unbelief, which leads us now to the last thing that we see happening in this chapter. Paul started his own seminary. Look back to the rest of verse 9. It said, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, by the way, means our tyrant. Now, we don't really know who our tyrant was, but it seems that Paul rented space from a lecture hall from a guy with this name in order to continue daily reasoning and teaching the disciples. Don't overlook the incredible results of this school. Look at verse 10. This is an incredible even though it's very brief, an incredible statement. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How did that happen? How did all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, hear the word of the Lord? If Paul was teaching every day in the hall of Tyrannus, it stands to reason Paul was not the one traveling all around Asia giving this message. Then who was it that was taking this message to all of Asia? The answer is simple. It was Paul's students. This was Paul's headquarters for two years. And during that time, Paul was training people up and equipping them to carry the gospel in every direction. What a wonderful thing it would be if this church, if our church, were to become more like the Hall of Tyrannus, training people up and sending them out ready to preach the gospel to all nations which brings us to three points of application from this text for the morning. First, on discerning others' salvation. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian actually is a Christian. How do you discern the difference? Well, there are two main ways that we need to examine those who profess faith in Christ. First, we need to examine what they claim to believe. And secondly, we need to examine how they live. In our passage today, it seems that The disciples of John were living moral and upright lives. They were living lives in accordance with his teaching about repentance. Their problem was not with open debauchery or rejection of God's authority. They had heard John the Baptist preach about forgiveness of sins. The way that Paul was able to discern whether or not they were true followers of Christ was not by looking at their actions, but by looking at their words about the gospel. When someone claims to be a believer, we need to likewise ask questions. Get to know them. Get to know what they actually believe. Hear them out and let them explain what it means that they follow Jesus. Now, to be clear, it is incredibly unlikely that anyone will agree with you 100% on everything about every doctrine. Probably not even in this room. That doesn't happen. But they will stand firm on the gospel if they are truly saved. Do they believe that they have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or are they trusting on their own works or their religiosity to save them? Do some digging. That will help you know if you, they are like these twelve disciples and you were like Paul, needing to preach the gospel to them, even though they might think they already have salvation. The second thing that we need to see here is about rebaptism. Notice, these twelve disciples in the passage had apparently already been baptized by the baptism of John. All of them believed in Christ after hearing the gospel, and all of them were baptized again. Well, how do we handle that kind of situation here at our church? What do we believe about rebaptism? Well, we welcome people with any legitimate baptism into membership. If you have been baptized in a legitimate way, praise God, we want you to be a member of our church, and we would not baptize you. We boil it down to three simple criteria to determine whether or not your baptism has been legitimate. First, have you been baptized after salvation? There are many different groups and sects that will baptize infants, and we would say uh, no infant has ever believed in Jesus Christ, and therefore no infant should be baptized. Have you been baptized after your salvation? There are some people who have been baptized in their 40s and 50s, but they did not actually know Christ, and so years later came to faith in Jesus Christ, and then they should be rebaptized. Secondly, have they been baptized by immersion? The word baptize means to be immersed. We could go through a very long period of time if you would like to know more about what it means to be baptized by immersion as opposed to sprinkling. I would love to make a biblical defense of that. And thirdly, a person must be baptized in a gospel believing church. I do not mean the building. I mean the community. In other words, if somebody was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, even if they were to dunk you like the Roman Catholics used to do, then we would say that is not a legitimate baptism because that church does not preach the true gospel, and so on and so forth. It must meet those three criteria. After salvation, by immersion in a gospel-believing church. If then you are missing any of these things, we don't believe that you actually have been baptized, according to the Scripture. You probably got wet, to some degree at least, but if any of those ingredients is missing, then you cannot claim to have been baptized. So in that sense, we do not believe that anyone should ever be rebaptized. We just believe that people should properly be baptized once. If you're hearing this and you're realizing, wow, I don't know if my baptism was legitimate. I don't know if my baptism meets those criteria. Please talk to me about that, whether you're a member of the church or not. We would love to make sure that you have trusted in Christ that you have obeyed Him through uh, being baptized according to the Scriptures. And if you're not yet a member, I'd love to talk to you about what that means in regards to membership in this community of faith. The third thing that we need to see here as an application from the text is how we live in the Spirit. We who are here are not going to respond to the Holy Spirit's presence like the people in our text today did. However, I think that our church does need to grow In our awareness of the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. You have the power of God in you. The person of God in you. The Holy Spirit never leaves you. You never have to sin again because you have the Holy Spirit's presence empowering you to say yes to Jesus and no to sin every time. Do you realize how incredible that is? Galatians tells us that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You can grow in your sensitivity to evil and awareness of temptation because the Holy Spirit sharpens your conscience. That's a great gift. The Spirit of God brings joy to your countenance. He brings peace to your heart. He brings the words to say when we have to give a defense for the faith. He provides us with wisdom even in the most challenging of circumstances. And as we read earlier, He guides us into truth. He intercedes for us. He helps us to pray as we ought. He assists us in our weakness. He causes us to bear good fruit. He seals our our salvation. What a good and mighty God. And he lives in you. And he never leaves you. What a terribly sad thing it would be if we, who are saved in this community, we have the Holy Spirit, but we live just like those 12 disciples did before hearing the gospel, as if we didn't have the Holy Spirit what is that? Uh, As one of my former professors often said, uh, Baptists don't usually have a very fleshed out uh, understanding of the Holy Spirit. Our entire pneumatology is just, I ain't Pentecostal. (laughs) That's not good. We should know who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, and we should rely upon His power and His strength to walk in His strength where we abide with Him forever. This is good news for us, just like it was for these 12 disciples of John. When they heard the good news, they received salvation and then received the Holy Spirit. When you heard the good news, you received salvation, and now if you have trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Praise God, that is good news. Brothers and sisters, I want us to grow ever more aware and in tune with the Spirit of God who has graciously chosen to make His home here with us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you save sinners, you save people who are missing pieces but think they understand you save people who are far away, who know nothing of you. Lord, we thank you that you save people like us. And we thank you that when you save us, you transform us, and that you fill us with the Spirit, and that you cause our lives to be transformed by the indwelling, ongoing work of the person of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Lord, we pray that today you would cause us to be transformed. May our lives be ever more dependent upon him and may we always be more like Christ because of our regular trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.